He is risen. About three of y'all are excited about Easter. My goodness. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Uh, my name is Chris Wilson. I'm the pastor here, and we're so glad that you're here to celebrate Easter with us at Restoration. Um, I hope you sounded good. I'm so stopped up. I can't hear anything. And also, I, if you need to hire someone to jump in early on songs, I'm your guy. Because I'll go early every time there's a chorus, a verse, whatever. I just go when I feel like it's time to go. And so... <laughs> If you ever hear anybody way ahead of the song in here, you know it's me. Uh, that's why I don't lead music also. Um, we finish out our seven-week Lenten series where we've been looking at the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross tonight. And tonight we look at the word of salvation. So if you have your Bibles, either a physical copy or if you need a copy, there's a couple left here on the table to my left in your right. Or if you've got it on your phones, you can go ahead and uh, click it on. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 23, uh, verses 42 and 43. Horace Gray served on the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court before being appointed to serve on the United States Supreme Court in the latter half of the 19th century. And while he was serving on the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court in Boston, he was presiding over a trial where there was an accused man who was set to be freed due to a technicality. Everyone knew this man was guilty, but there was a technicality in the law that was going to allow him to walk free and so from the bench looking down at this man who everyone knew deserved a punishment and a stiff sentence but would go free justice gray looked him in the eye and said i know that you are guilty and you know it and i wish you to remember that one day you will stand before a better and wiser judge and that there you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to the law. And I think in Judge Gray's admonition to this man who was set to go free, there is a warning for each of us to not think for a moment that we are going to somehow escape perfect justice on a technicality, that we're going to arrive before the bar of God's justice, and we're going to pull out a trump card that God is unaware of, and that is going to be what allows us into his kingdom without having come through his son. We all know that we are guilty at some level or another. We feel this sense of needing to prove ourselves, of needing to atone for ourselves. It doesn't matter in what world religion you go or in what strand of humanism you follow. There is always a sense in which people are seeking to prove either their goodness or to atone for what they know is their inherent badness and so where then is our hope where is the hope that we have to offer others our hope is found in a person named Jesus and in his finished atoning work whereby he paid the penalty for our sins in his death on the cross more than that he was raised from the dead showing God's acceptance of his sacrifice and even more than that when he walked out of the grave he did so as a conquering king who had defeated Satan, sin, and death. And this is where, as the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, says, we find strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And so today we rejoice in our Savior, Jesus Christ, knowing that when God the Father looks on us, those who have trusted in Christ, he sees the perfect righteousness of his Son. As Russell Moore tweets almost every Easter, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday we were dead. 
And that's the spirit of Easter. Let us eat, drink, and be merry. For yesterday we were dead, but we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus that now makes each of us alive. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you tonight humbly confessing our need for your saving work in each of our lives. And if we've trusted you for salvation, Father, then there is great hope for today. There's great hope for tomorrow. There's great hope for eternity. Because hope is never necessarily how we feel in any one moment. Our hope is always anchored to you, Jesus. And so would you help us to lean in and to trust that hope? As we look at the word of salvation that you offered the criminal on the cross tonight, would it encourage our hearts? Would it challenge us? And would we leave as those who have known and experienced the resurrecting power of Jesus in each of our lives. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Luke, in his gospel account, says this regarding the men who were crucified on either side of Jesus, the criminals. I thought I had it, and then I looked away from it. One of the criminals who were hanged, I'm going to start in verse 39 and read down through 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus hangs as a condemned man between two criminals, somewhere between six to probably 15 feet apart. The three crosses were raised, and Jesus hangs in the middle between these two criminals. These men were found guilty by the state, and the scope and severity of their crimes warranted them being sentenced to death. They were held in prison. We're not sure how long, but eventually they were brought out of prison. The day had arrived and they were lined up with Jesus to be marched through the streets of Jerusalem to their death. Both men, just like Jesus, were tasked with carrying their crossbeams through the streets of Jerusalem with Jesus. They were made a spectacle for the watching crowd to insult and to mock and to jeer. They ascended the hill of Golgotha with Jesus, knowing that they would never walk back down. With screams of pain, they were each wrist and both feet to their crosses and up the crosses went until they were roughly dropped into the ground as the agony of the day continues what is the response of these men to the man who hangs between them how do they see the one who above his cross has an inscription that reads king of the jews they both start by joining with the crowd who has come by to see jesus this one who has said that he is the son of god This one who has said that he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. There is a steady stream of people who are coming by to hurl insults at him, to jeer him, to try to bait him into somehow proving his divinity by rescuing himself from the cross. And the criminals join in hurling insults at and deriding and reviling Jesus. Matthew 27, 44 and Mark 15, 32 recount the criminals joining in with the crowd. And how these thieves initially see and respond to Jesus serves as a mirror for where we all enter the world as those born in sin. We are born rebels with hearts bent on insulting, reviling, and otherwise ignoring God's rightful claim over our 
lives. And this is not just from the thief's perspective. This is how Scripture testifies to it. It says in, from Genesis 3 on, it paints this picture of us as living opposite or in rebellion against God. Psalm 14, 1 through 3 states that we have all turned aside and that not one of us seek after God. Not one. Not a few. Not a handful. No one in their natural state would seek after God. God. In Romans 8, 7 through 8, Paul points to the truth that if our mind is set on the flesh, it is hostile to God and will not seek to please him. And we are reminded in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 from Paul again that we are all sons of disobedience and children of wrath in our natural state. Therefore, when we hear the criminals cursing Jesus, we see a mirror of our own hearts before we trust in Christ for salvation. And think about how vastly different the response of the two criminals is. Everything, at least in part, that they've experienced from being led out of jail until now on the cross has been exactly the same. And they both watched as Jesus has endured the shame and as Jesus has struggled to carry his crossbeam up the hill and he's helped out by someone who's just passing by. They've both had equal opportunity to see Jesus suffering for the sins of the world. And one is going to respond in faith and one is going to respond in cursing. And I think the first thing that is a challenge for us is to remember that these are really the only two types of people in the world. There are only those who have faithfully trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and submitted their life to him in humble reverence and obedience, accepting the free gift of his salvation. They have cried out to him. He has rescued and redeemed them. And they now live their lives in glad-hearted obedience to the king who has made it possible for them to be adopted into the family. And on the other side, there are those who constantly live to revile, to insult, to mock, or to otherwise ignore God in their life. And they can go to church with you and sit in the pews and hear the same sermons you hear. They can be raised in a home where the Bible is read and where prayers are prayed and family devotions are had. There's a mysterious aspect to every person's salvation that we shouldn't gloss over because everyone can hear the same thing from the same person in the exact same manner and one heart will be drawn to believe in Christ and another heart will continue unrepentant in its sin. And these are the only two types of people there are in the world. And that's challenging because we want to believe that there's a third way. We want to add another just morally good human who does more good than they do bad. And they're somehow going to be okay. But we're going to get to that in a moment. But these are the criminals both hanging. Both start by reviling and mocking and insulting Jesus. But then there is a change in one of the criminals. He goes from, from reviling to reverence. He goes from anger to awareness. He goes from posturing to pleading. As the day has drawn on and as they've both watched Jesus suffer and die, one has a change of heart. He has his eyes opened, his spiritual eyes opened, and his need for a Savior is exposed. This criminal then turns to the one who he just moments before had been joining and insulting Jesus and begins to shout him down for continuing to curse at and mock Jesus. 
He says they are, in essence, getting their just dues from the law because they are lawbreakers. But somehow, in some way, as he's watched Jesus walk the road of Jerusalem up to the hill and begin the process of dying, there's something in this uh, one criminal's heart that has been changed. And he sees Jesus as one who is truly innocent. He sees the innocence of Jesus and his own guilt, and he begins to understand that there is something about what this man's death is accomplishing that warrants his full attention. So he turns to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what is Jesus' response? What would be your response? If for 30 seconds someone had been cursing at you, mocking you, jeering you, and then in just a moment's time, they all of a sudden say, hey, um, so when you make dinner plans tonight, can you invite me over? I'm like, uh, no, not today, maybe tomorrow or never. But what is Jesus' response? Does he turn a cold shoulder to the one who moments before was cursing him? Did he go ahead and speed up his own death so that he just didn't have to answer the dying man's plea? Did he just say, look, I'm laying my life down. I'm going to lay it down a little early so that nobody has to worry about it or answer this man's plea for salvation. Jesus instead looks the criminal in the eye and he says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The word of salvation is spoken And in that moment, the criminal has been adopted into the family of God. And this is the challenge of Jesus' word of salvation to the criminal. It reminds us that salvation, while it may be over the course of a season or in the blink of an eye, that salvation is ever and only always by the sheer mercy and grace of God. And we're sitting in church, so we're all going to nod. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But is it, as Paul Tripp would say, is it street level theologically true of your life? Because often, if we're honest, we think and perhaps still believe that there is something inherently good in us that draws God's attention to us and causes him to want to love us. Or perhaps after trusting Christ for salvation, we've lived as if our ongoing security in our salvation becomes dependent on what we do. Now, we believe and we affirm that as long as you have breath in your lungs and you're following Christ, you should seek to be faithful, to live in light of Christ's commands, and you should seek to be fruitful in your life. That's just the healthy rhythm of the life of a believer. But we never lose sight of the fact that none of that is what makes us a believer. It's proof of our salvation, but it's not how we earn our salvation because salvation is a free gift that can't be earned, that's given to us by God. And when we see the criminal on the cross, we see the truth of salvation being a free gift. Because here's what Jesus knew. Jesus knew that before those hands and those feet of the criminal were nailed to the cross they had been in old testament terminology swift to shed blood 
and quick to devise evil. There's no indication from the text that this guy was just a good kid caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time. Everything about how the text is written seems to carry with it this idea that wall breaking was just what this guy was good at and eventually the law had caught up with him. And so there was nothing before this moment that he had done that was inherently going to draw Jesus to him. But Jesus, out of sheer grace and mercy, was drawn to the criminal. And here's also what Jesus knew. Those nail-pierced hands and feet of the criminal were not coming off that cross to then go live a life that showed that he was worthy of being saved. He just knew he was going to die and be with him because salvation is the sheer mercy and grace of God in our life. And so it's not about what we do beforehand to try to catch God's eye and get him to look at us and want to save us. And it's not about what we do after as if we then prove that we were worth being saved. After we come to faith in Christ, everything we live out after that is worship-filled obedience for what Christ has already done. Healthy believers live constantly in the light of what Christ has done, never under the shadow of trying to earn their own salvation. And it is tricky in our own hearts and lives how quick we can move between living in the light of Christ's finished work and working in the shadows to try to earn our own salvation. Both of these ways of thinking, either that we can draw God's attention to us or that we can prove we were worth saving after the fact, are proven false in the salvation of the thief. Here we see that God isn't beholden to our race. He isn't beholden to our ethnicity. He isn't beholden to our gender or our bank account or our family lineage or our promises to do better, nor any other metric by which we seek to rate the worthiness of others to receive our love. In the salvation of the criminal, you see that God is not partial. But God is merciful. God is gracious. And God is loving. And God is kind. And so he shows no partiality in that moment or in any of our lives. And if we're honest, this is the under-the-skin idol that most of us don't really know how to identify and deal with in our life. We think that God is somehow partial to us because of what we offer to the kingdom. We think that God is somehow partial to us because of where we were born or the melanin count in our skin or the success we've achieved in our careers or any other number of things. Scripture testifies over and over and over again, God isn't partial. Because if God were partial, we would all be condemned to death. A partial God who looks for something that would, in, in us, that would draw him to us in our own inherent goodness is a God who would always turn his back on us. But if God is impartial, then he can look on us with pity and love and power, and he can rescue us, and he can save us. Our Savior is able to rescue those who call on him for salvation and forgiveness of sin. 
but it's challenging to really accept that and live that out. It's challenging to think about what that means for the people that we maybe hold grudges against, for the people that we think are undeserving of salvation, for the people that we think aren't really proving their worthiness of the salvation that they claim by how they live their life. And then we come back to this moment with Jesus and the criminal. And we again understand that in a moment, salvation is the work of God in a person's life to give them faith to trust and believe in the finished work of Jesus. And so is it, while it is challenging, we also find comfort in Jesus' words of salvation because he resurrected from the dead. We read the following words from the men who were standing in the tomb to greet the women in Luke 24, 5 through 7. And I read these as we open, but I'm going to read them again. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. You see, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead as he himself had predicted and the prophets of old had foretold, then we would have no confidence in salvation being available to us. We would be left to surmise that this offer to the thief to join him in paradise was nothing more than the deranged ramblings of someone who was exhausted, dehydrated, delusional, and on the verge of an inglorious death, who was making a last gasp promise to try to convince people he was something he wasn't. But when Christ arose from the dead, all those thoughts and questions were laid to rest. He is the Christ of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And in him and him alone is forgiveness and life to be found. The offer of the forgiveness of our sins, the offer of new life with Christ, is only valid and only worth us committing our life to if Jesus, in fact, rose. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are to be most pitied among men. Everything about our trust in Christ for salvation hinges on him rising from the dead and walking out of the grave victorious over Satan, sin, and death. And Christ rising from the dead not only gives us the comfort of the promise that we will one day be with him in paradise in John 14, 1 through 3, where he talks about he's going to prepare a place. And if it were not so, he would not have told them. But if he's going to prepare it, he's going to come back and get us and take us to the place that he has prepared. So not only do we have the promise that we will one day be with him in paradise, which is a great comfort. Christ's resurrection from the dead and his promise of salvation also gives us the comfort to trust in all that is ours when we trust Jesus for salvation and find ourselves, as Scripture says, in Christ. I want, in just a few moments, to try my best to overwhelm you with confidence about what is yours in Christ. Marcus Peters Johnson gives the following to consider. Believers are created in Christ, Ephesians 2.10. Believers are crucified with him, Galatians 2.20. Believers are buried with Christ, Colossians 2.12.
Believers are baptized into Christ and his death, Romans 6, 3. Believers are united with him in his resurrection, Romans 6, 5. Believers are seated with him in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2, 6. Christ is formed in believers, Galatians 4, 19. Christ dwells in our hearts, Ephesians 3, 17. The church is the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 6, 15 and 12, 27. Christ is in us, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. And we are in him, 1 Corinthians 1:30 the church is one flesh with Christ Ephesians 5:31 through 32 believers gain Christ and are found in him Philippians 3 8 and 9 furthermore in Christ we are justified Romans 8 1 we are glorified Romans 8 30 we are sanctified 1 Corinthians 1 2 we are called we are made alive Ephesians 2 5 we are created anew 2 Corinthians 5 17 we are adopted Galatians 3 26 and we are elected Ephesians 1 4 through 5 all this without reference to the gospel of John or the letters of John Then there are the benefits of being in Christ that are found just in Romans 8 alone, some of which were mentioned just above. But that list isn't exhaustive. And I want to encourage you this week, as you think about the implications for the resurrection in your life, I want you to go back, work through Romans 8, and make note of all the promises that are there for us if we are in Christ. I believe you'll find the list enriching and encouraging as you seek to love and follow Jesus. When I came to faith in Christ, almost all of my understanding about what that meant had to do with being with him in paradise. It's only in probably the last five to seven years that I begin to put together the pieces of what it means to have him here and now. That the promise of salvation and being with Christ in paradise is a good reward to look forward to. But there's also so much more that Christ wants to do in us and through us, even now if we will become aware of what Scripture says is true for us. We become aware of how God views us in Christ. If we would allow ourselves to be overwhelmed with all that is at our disposal to live to make a difference for the kingdom of God in the here and now. But if we're honest, everything I just read you from all those different scripture references, it looks weak, it looks poor, and it looks foolish to the world. And because we often allow the world to determine what strength, riches, and wisdom are in our life as believers, we forfeit the riches of God for the counterfeit riches of the world. We move outside of what God says he has given us so that we would live as people of the resurrection and we begin to clamor for the things of the world that only end in death. But if we will lean into what Christ has given us, not just as it concerns the promised life and world to come, but in the here and now, we find ourselves comforted and strengthened by his word of salvation because it's not all deferred benefits. There are tangible, life-impacting truths and power we can live into now as we seek to grow in sanctification and see the kingdom of God expand here in Wilmington. The word of salvation is a comfort to us that we look to for strength. 
And living into the fullness of the gospel now doesn't work like a 401k where you are punished for making an early withdrawal from your retirement. We're not dealing with limited resources or a God who is seeking to punish us for living into what is one day to be ours. When we access the power and the attributes and the disciplines of Scripture that God has given us to understand what it looks like to walk like Jesus in this world, we're not somehow going to diminish our enjoyment of the life to come. We're not going to somehow take away from our enjoyment of seeing Jesus face to face. In fact, I would submit that the more we lean into and the more we live as people who are aware of all that is ours in Christ, the more we will enjoy the life that is to come and the more we will enjoy seeing Jesus face to face. We are dealing with the limitless, eternal infinite, inexhaustible riches of God's grace and mercy that grow rather than shrivel when used by God's children for God's purposes. And as we live into what is ours in Christ, we find ourselves growing in anticipation of the day John wrote about in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. And this is what John says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. All the former things that mark life in a sin-cursed and broken world will pass away. And all the things of God will continue on forever into eternity. And we will enjoy the full benefits of our life that we have been given in Christ without even the threat or the presence of sin. But we don't just have to wait for that day to begin to enjoy the riches of God's grace that he has given us now and so yes we take comfort that regardless of what the diagnosis may be from the doctor regardless of what may happen when we're driving the speed limit down market street may happen regardless of what may happen on the plane we get on regardless of what may happen when we're out at a strip mall and someone comes by and starts to shoot into a crowd regardless of what happens in life yes the promise of salvation grounds us and gives us hope for the life to come but it also gives us hope for how we live in the here and now. And it should comfort us and it should strengthen us and it should cause us to live a life that not only looks forward to the day that is to come when we will see Jesus face to face, but we would live a life that shows how much we enjoy Jesus now even as we wait for him. The story is told of a man who passed away who was extremely wealthy. And one of the big parts of his legacy that he left behind in his will were a collection of very expensive art pieces. And this man in particular had a son who had died before him. It was a son whom he loved dearly. 
and this son would have been his only heir. Soon after the death of the wealthy man, a public auction was held that included the valuable art pieces. People came from all over the world because of those works of art. Over a thousand people gathered to participate in the auction. The auctioneer began the auction by offering for sale a portrait painted by the deceased son. It was a rather plain painting, not at all like the other expensive art pieces. The floor opened for bids, but there weren't any. After what seemed like a long silence, a little old man walked down the aisle. As he neared the front of the room, the auctioneer recognized him. He had been the servant of the wealthy man. He meagerly and almost shamefully offered a couple of dollars from his pocket for the child-drawn portrait. The auctioneer hit his gavel and said, Sold! And the many people in the room began to shift with excitement, preparing for the main part of the selling to begin. But much to their surprise and chagrin, the auctioneer hit the gavel again and said, Auction over. The room filled with loud chatter and confusion, wondering at the early close of the auction. The auctioneer went on to explain, In the will of the master, the instructions specifically said to offer for sale the painting drawn by his son first, and that whoever gets the painting of his son gets the whole art collection. The master had decided well in advance that whoever loved his son and accepted him could not only have his son's work, but all the other benefits that belonged to the father. That's the story of our salvation. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was not a man who drew people to himself. There was nothing about him that caused people to flock to him, but there was a way about him that communicated that he was indeed who he said he was. And God orchestrated all of history from eternity past to those moments in Jesus' life in Jerusalem up until the cross to be the means by which those of us, sinners though we are, could have access to the riches of the Father. But it would only be through the Son. More than that, it would only be by the grace and mercy of the Father himself. And so it doesn't look like much to the world. It doesn't look like it has a lot of value in the here and now for how we pursue making a difference for, with our lives, how we leverage our free time, how we leverage our finances, how we leverage our family life. It looks foolish to the world. It looks like it doesn't make sense. It looks like it's a waste. But we've seen the true beauty of the Son. And we've responded in faith. And now we have access to the riches that will never end. To the riches that are stored up for us where neither moth nor rust destroy, nor can the thief break in and steal. And so when you consider Christ's word of salvation from the cross, it challenges us to remember that salvation is and always will be an act of sheer mercy and grace initiated by God in the lives of us who, if we were left to ourselves, would never pursue God on our own. And that offer is good for everyone, for the person you think is most deserving of it to the person you think is least deserving of it. The offer of life in Christ is for all. And beyond that, we find comfort in his word of salvation. 
Comfort not only for the life to come, but comfort that we have access to the inexhaustible riches of God to be used in our life now so that we would live growing in sanctification and having the character of Christ formed in us and growing in seeing the kingdom of God advance here on the earth while we patiently wait for him to return or call us home. And so today, if you haven't trusted in Christ, I invite you to cry out to him in faith and trust him for salvation, for a new heart, and for eternal life. It's the greatest need that any of us have ever had and we will ever have. And if you have trusted in Christ, and I invite you to rejoice in all that is yours, not only what is promised and awaits you in the life to come, but what is yours even now. Let's pray.